to the Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Michael Tuss, and today I'll be speaking with author Scott Russell Sanders about his new book, Small Marvels. Scott is a best-selling author who has written over 20 books of fiction, nonfiction, essays, and personal narrative. He's also a distinguished professor emeritus of English at Indiana University and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Science. Welcome to the show, Scott. Glad to be here, Michael. Well, you know, I usually start off because I know from letters we get in that we have um, aspiring writers listening sometimes. How do you, um, when do you write? What's your favorite place to write? I'm a type writer. That is, mm-hmm. I started as early as high school back in uh, many years ago on a manual typewriter. I would type my papers. I find it easier to compose on a keyboard. And of course, for, for decades now, I've been using a computer. But I have a little study in our house with views out the window of gardens and grounds and birds. Um, but I sit at that desk a good part of every morning. And that's when I do my writing, and I do it in this small study. And on the walls of the study are bookshelves, including many books by that have inspired me, including many books by friends. Uh, and I have, as many writers do, I have objects around my desk, photographs, fossils, leaves, uh, things, small objects that my father made or that my mother made. So objects that have symbolic meaning for me. But this is the little nest where I hatch my stories. Do you write every day? Well, that's my goal. Mm-hmm. And when I, I'm now long retired from teaching, and I have that freedom and actually privilege to spend three or four hours at the keyboard every morning. Sometimes I'm only making notes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm conducting writing-related business correspondence and so forth. But most of those times, I'm working at composing something. And over my career, I've divided my work roughly half and half between personal forms of nonfiction and various kinds of fiction, short mm-hmm. and long novels, stories, and so forth. Okay. Uh, so so I'm, uh, I do have a writing practice, and it's an early morning practice because that's when my energy is highest. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about the new book, Small Marvels. You know, I was tempted initially to call this a book of 24 short stories, but after reading the interlocking nature of the stories, I I wonder how you would describe it. Well, there is this label. I'm sure many listeners will have come across a book that has a subtitle, which is a novel in stories. And that's actually the way this book should have been subtitled. Uh, I had a discussion back and forth with my publisher about that. Sometimes that label, novel in stories, is just a way to uh, persuade readers that what they're holding is, is really more like a novel than a collection of a random collection of stories. But in this case, I think it's an authentic title because all of the stories deal with the same family, the same set of characters in the same setting. And they, they interlock, as you point out, in that Events that take place in one story might crop up as a background in a different story, and they all happen to occur within a single calendar year, uh, and that the references to the seasons and so forth 
that give that sense of coherence. So while I wrote the wrote them as chapters, some of the chapters could be freestanding, and in fact, some of the chapters were published free, as freestanding stories in magazines. But I've all, always conceived the book as a whole, and therefore, I guess I would call it a novel in stories. Okay. Did you write these stories in the sequence which they appear, or did you write them in a kind of a random sequence and then decide to put them in the sequence? I did not write them in the sequence in which they appear. It might be surprising, but I hope also revealing to listeners that I wrote these stories over the course of about 20 years. Wow. I, I finally drew them all together into a book and emphasized the interwoven nature of the stories. I, I wove them into a book about a, a year before they were published sometime in the year 2021. I got you. Well, you know, the book... And, uh, let, let me just say a yeah. word about why I wrote these over such a period of time. And yeah. It's because much of my writing during those last 20 years have been about dark subjects. I've written a lot about environmental disasters, war, racism, gun violence, uh, sexism, many of the ailments that afflict our society and our planet. So much of my nonfiction is about those really hard and often dark themes. And this book was, for me, a periodic refuge where I could go and I could remind myself through the characters and through their their lives and their actions, I could remind myself of the human capacity for kindness and for cooperation and neighborliness and all of those traditional virtues that Americans claim to believe in and that actually many people practice, but the people who practice them don't make the headlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I tell you, it really comes through. I, I think one of the... Um one of the comments on the book by one of your um, one, one, it's a singer-songwriter that says it's a balm for the heart and spirit, and it certainly is. Well, let me say this. So the book centers around the Mills family, Gordon, Mabel, and the children, uh, and actually even the grandparents. And I was struck by the fact that each one of these characters you have given a very unique personality to. Um, where, what did you draw upon to come up with these varied personalities? Well... Many people, many sources, but the the chief ones, I would say, and this won't be a surprise to listeners, the chief one for my father, for for Gordon, the father of this household, was my father. He shares, Gordon, my character, shares with my real father a skill in the use of tools, a working-class background, a kind of... uh, ra- radical competence that is he Gordon faces all sorts of problems and challenges at home and at work and he takes them all in his stride and in those ways he resembles my father and Mabel the wife of this household resembles my mother or at least borrows traits from my mother including again a vast array of skills she was the one, Mabel, in the book and also in my, my life, my mother, who held the family together, who kept things moving, who really gave direction to the children and looked after the old people when the old people needed looking after. The nine characters, the nine central characters in the family, the Mills family, 
as you know from the book, all live in the same house. Mm -hmm. And it's a big old rambling house that Gordon has to keep fixing up because it was a fixer-upper when they bought it, and it continues to be a fixer-upper. And my father did that with a series of houses. That is, we couldn't afford to buy a, a house in good condition that would hold the family, but we could afford to buy a rundown house. And my father had the skills and the energy to fix it up. So we did that with several houses in a row, and that's what the Mills family do as well. Well, can I get you to read perhaps uh, an excerpt that uh, kind of lays out the characters and their their personalities? Well, okay, uh, maybe I'll read just the opening couple of paragraphs of the book because it gives the reader and therefore the listener okay. a sense. Once, not long ago, there was a jack-of-all-trades named Gordon Mills. He lived with his wife, their four children, and three grandparents in Limestone, Indiana. The city tucked away among forested hills and shadowy caves, a place so obscure that it rarely appears on maps. Their old house, which fell apart as fast as Gordon could fix it, was packed with souls from foundation to rafters. Gordon slept in the basement with his wife, a small but formidable woman named Mabel. They had surrendered their former bedroom to Mabel's parents, who were a bit daughtery, while his mother, still spry, slept in a room Gordon had built over the garage. The two daughters, prone to squabbling, occupied separate bedrooms on the second floor, while the two sons, far enough apart in age to avoid fighting, shared bunk beds in the attic. They weren't exactly poor, since they never went hungry but they also never had any spare cash to put away for harder times. Each month, Mabel's parents, Mama and Papa Hawkins, received a tiny Social Security check, which they used to order surefire remedies for old age from ads in the back pages of magazines. Gordon's mother, Granny Mills, drew an even tinier pension from the owners of the quarry in which his father had been crushed by a tumbled limestone block. She spent much of her money on lottery tickets and trips to the French Lick Casino without much luck. The older children worked odd jobs after school, but the few dollars they brought in went for clothes, music, books, and electronic gadgets. Mabel had her hands full running the household. That left Gordon to earn enough to keep food on the table and a roof over the heads. You know, I, I fell in love with these characters. But I want to ask, as a writer, um, have you found that, I'm going to say, idiosyncratic characters like Gordon are more fun to write about? Oh, yes, definitely. People just, if, if I summarize their life, okay, a working-class family living in a small Midwestern town in southern Indiana, what could possibly be interesting about those people right. or those lives? Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, each of the individuals, I'm glad you feel this. I appreciate your re reaction. Each of those lives is distinct. Each person has talents and gifts and idiosyncrasies that make him or her interesting to me. Uh, Gordon's mother, for example, who's a widow, yeah. loves to travel to a casino in southern Indiana to gamble. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And occasionally she wins just enough money to pay for the speeding ticket she gets on her way driving to or from the casino yeah. in her red car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Gordon put a governor on the engine so that she couldn't go fast. And she didn't know that. And she gets frustrated that she can't speed because she's so eager to get to the casino. Well, just one little detail. Uh, it's, it's based in part on a woman here in my hometown of Bloomington, whom I knew, who in her later years really did go once a week in her big car down to the French Lick Casino. <laughs> well, you know, look, good writing, and you know this better than I, have universal themes. And, you know, I found myself identifying with aspects of each one of these characters, you know, vis-a-vis people that I know or have known. And I just thought that was wonderful. Is there a character in the book? Now, you've told us about the inspiration for Gordon and Mabel. Is there a character in the book that you yourself identify with most? Good question. A hard question. There's a little bit of me in every character, right. including some of their, for example, uh, the obstinacy of some of the elders in the family, mm-hmm. the forgetfulness of Gordon's mother. There are traits of me in all of the characters, but I suppose I feel closest to Gordon just mm-hmm. because he borrows many qualities from my father, qualities that I most admired in my father. Uh, so it's not so much that I see Gordon as a version of me as I see him of, of a version of a very complex, very talented, sometimes troubled, um, but lovable man, my mm-hmm. father. Mm-hmm. Well, now, I know that there's this connection between you and your parents being in the characters. But, you know, authors quite often will tell me that if they create good characters, those characters actually help write the story. Has that been your experience, and did you find it that to be experience. true? It is my experience. It is my experience. Characters, as I'm writing a scene, for example, characters in my mind will say something that I hadn't predicted and hadn't thought about. And sometimes I'll... I'll, I'll reflect on it, and I'll decide, no, no, I don't want them to say that. But other times they more or less insist on saying a certain thing or doing a certain thing that surprises me. But then when I reflect on it, it seems somehow true to their character or true to the situation in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Uh, it, it's not that the, the, the characters dictate the story, but mm-hmm. they open possibilities that would not have occurred to me had I not created the characters. Yeah, it, I think it is one of the things that listeners most often respond to me by saying, I, I, I have trouble understanding this, um, but uh, I understand it. And, and I've heard it repeatedly from folks that the characters will help do that. And that they will, I actually had an author in here one time say his characters will say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Can I get you to read another excerpt uh, from the book? Let me read, since I read the opening couple of paragraphs, let me read the closing paragraph. Okay. Gordon and his family got caught in a flood and on their way to what was a very rare treat for them, a vacation in northern Indiana. And Gordon feels ashamed because he had driven, they were driving in the dark, and he had driven down into a low-lying land, and the car flooded out, and the family was very lucky to get out. So he's in the cab of a truck who has 
stop, a big semi that is stopped to pick up the family. And Gordon is sitting in the cab with his wife, his mother, Mm -hmm. his children in the back, and the other two grandparents. Gordon started to say he felt ashamed for endangering his family. But Mabel pressed a finger against his lips and said again, hush. And he did hush and let go of his worry for the moment, let go of his sorrow, listening to the music of his children laughing, Mamma and Papa chatting with the driver, his mother lightly snoring, Mabel sighing and surrounding them all, embracing them all, the innocent speech of the rain. I I have to tell you, I thought this was a wonderful way to end the collection of stories. Um, Let me jump back to something, though. A question listeners will sometimes ask is, uh, can you ask the writer where his or her inspiration comes from for a particular story? In the story titled Rabbit in the book, uh, which is about the unplanned fourth child, Danny, and the elderly neighbors next door, uh, Ray and Ella, I caught a brief note at the beginning of the book on this. Tell us a bit about the story and where the inspiration came from. Well, Carrie Newcomer, a wonderful singer-songwriter whose endorsement of the book I'm grateful for, and it's actually on the front cover, Carrie Newcomer wrote a song about that yard ornament, a great big plaster of Paris rabbit, and it caught my fancy, (laughs) and I wrote a story to go along with it, and Carrie and I and some other singer-songwriters from the Bloomington area have a number of times done shows together. And one of the things that Carrie and I have done is to sing, in her case, a song, and and I'll tell a story or read a story that are really about the same characters or the same events. And so she wrote the song first, and that inspired my story. Uh, The influence has also gone the opposite direction. There's another story in the book, as you know, called Centaur, mm-hmm. about a um, mythological beast that has been hiding out in a cave near my fictional town of Limestone, Indiana. And that story caught the fancy of another singer-songwriter from Bloomington, Indiana, named Krista Detour. And Krista wrote a hilarious song <laughs> about that story. Uh, so... Story ideas come and go, and I, I love working with uh, singer-songwriters, and I also love working with photographers, which I've done in other books. Uh, the other artists, people who see the world or express their, their vision of the world in a different medium from language, for, or at least from writing, often give me ideas. That's interesting. Now, there is, for me at least, there's a story in the book that seems to sum up the lovable Gordon, and I think many of us can identify with. It's the story entitled Wilderness. And in it, Gordon decides to turn his backyard, which you have described through the course of the book as being kind of full of junk, and he's decided to turn it into a forest. Can you pick it up from there and tell us how this ends? Well, the listeners should understand that there's a good deal of... of, um, folktale quality to this book. Uh-huh. Uh, corn stalks that grow higher than the house and so forth. And centaurs living in caves outside of town 
And in the wilderness story, Gordon and his children go to a site where that's being cleared for some development. And they dig up plants, many of which had not yet leafed out, so they weren't sure what the plants were. And they transplant them to Gordon and Mabel's backyard. And it turns out a fair number of those plants were poison ivy and poison oak and, <laughs> and uh, other <laughs> other itch-causing plants. And so that was the first problem they ran into. And this being a, a world in which uh, strange things happen, but nobody regards them as strange, the, the wilderness quickly grows up in the backyard and it attracts an animals of different sorts. And for Mabel, the final straw is when a bear sh shows up in the backyard and nobody can scare it away until the youngest of the children, uh, Danny, who's only six or seven, uh, sort of orders the bear to leave and then the bear does leave. But he leaves by actually tearing through the fence, which then gives Gordon another uh, problem to fix. And Mabel lays down the law and says, it's all well and good to have a little greenery in the backyard, but she's not going to have wolves and coyotes and bears roaming in the yard where they could eat eat her children. <laughs> uh, so Gordon, Gordon and his kids dig up most of the plants and take them back and carefully plant them in a field that had been allowed uh, to go fallow. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a parable. It's a story about the longing for a quote-unquote return to nature uh, with a reminder that nature is, is not necessarily always friendly and, uh, and uh, helpful to human beings. Yeah, I just, again, I just thought it kind of captured Gordon. He has this great idea. And, you know, the well-played uh, well uh, plans kind of go awry. Now, it, yes. di it did strike me um, that this might be Gordon's first life, um, but he embraces it. And, you know, we who think we have it all figured out could learn much from him. What do you think we can learn from Gordon's approach to life? First of all, to accept that the world is full of astounding things. In, in one of the, in the very opening tale, he's driving a garbage truck for the city. And from the town dump, he sees the Northern Lights, what we would understand as the Northern Lights, but nobody else can see them. Mm -hmm. He takes a couple of his helpers up there, they can't see them. He takes his supervisor up there, they can't see them. The people who work at the dump can't see them. But then his first child comes along, Jeannie. And when she's a toddler, he takes her up and she looks and sees them and claps her hands. And it's about the, ch the child's capacity to actually see the beauty and the miraculousness of the world. Uh, and Gordon has sustained that into adulthood, and I value that in him. And I suppose I'm inviting readers, readers of all ages, children as well as oldsters, <clears throat> to re remember that yeah. our, our very lives are miracles, and these creatures with feathers flying past our windows, uh, and the trees rooted 
in the ground outside our doors that each of these itself is a miraculous creation. Because we're familiar with them, we cease recognizing that miraculous quality. And what I really love about Mabel, I'm sorry, what I really love about Gordon is his capacity to see that, to be open to the wonder of the world. Well, again, I think that comes through. I, I can't tell you how many times I smiled by something Gordon did or said or something Mabel did. Um, and, and I think it comes through tremendously. Now, let me end with this question. You know, authors will sometimes say that readers will find things in their stories that, that they didn't anticipate, that, you know, they weren't thinking about when they wrote. Have you had that happen to you with Small Marvels or with uh, uh, some of your other books? Yes, I have. I've found it with the early readers of Small Marvels. The book hasn't been out very long, and so I haven't heard from that many readers, you know, mm-hmm. a few dozen. And people have pointed out things in the book that struck them. And I either hadn't thought about those aspects that had struck the readers, or they, they interpreted them in ways or they found meanings that I hadn't anticipated. Uh, and I've had that, that kind of experience with previous books as well. Part of, partly that happens because one's own, uh, the, the writer's unconscious is putting things on the page that the writer's not really deliberately doing. Uh, they're expressions of underlying feelings or memories. And so readers may see or notice those things and the writer himself or herself might not have been conscious of them. Uh, and also, of course, people bring to every book they read their own life experiences. So they will see maybe resemblances to people they know that would be a surprise to me. And, and actually, it would be a delight to me. Yeah. Or people would see in, in a, a story, if I'm writing autobiographically, people would see in a story about my life something that gives them insight into their own life. And that's always a deep pleasure when somebody tells me that they've had that kind of experience. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, You've been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Michael Tusa, and I've really been privileged to speak with Scott Russell Sanders about his new book, Small Marvels. Scott, is there a website or other places where folks can go to learn more about the book and about you? Yes, they, they can find more about it at my website, which is Scott Russell Sanders, just one word, all lowercase, scottrussellsanders.com. Okay. Scott, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. I enjoyed it.